This past Thursday, we observed the traditional National Day of Thanksgiving. We had, most of us had turkey and dressing and all the trimmings. I personally ate five different kinds of pie. And uh, when I checked my blood sugar on Friday, it showed it. But it was a great day. We set aside this day annually to focus on the many things that we have to be thankful for. Even without a calendar, it's always easy to tell when Thanksgiving Day is close. Walmart marks the Halloween costumes down to 90% off and the Christmas decorations go up. And when the Halloween costumes are 90% off and the Christmas decorations go up, it's Thanksgiving. I actually often resent the fact that this time of gratitude for the blessings of heaven is so often overlooked. Because you see, all of us have so very much to be thankful for. The truth of the matter is that sometimes we are just very, very hard to please. I think of a story that I read not long ago. It seems a rather large dog walked into a butcher shop with a purse in its mouth. And the dog put the purse down in front of the meat case. And the butcher behind the meat case jokingly said, what is it, boy? You want to buy some meat? Whoop, the dog barks. Hmm, what kind? Liver? Bacon? Steak? Whoop, the dog says. Well, how much steak? Half a pound? One pound? Whoop, the dog says. The butcher's kind of standing there scratching his head, but he takes some steak and puts it up on the scales, weighs out a pound of it. Finds the money in the dog's purse, wraps the meat up, puts it in a bag, and the dog leaves. He's got his purse and his sack in his mouth. Well, there's a man that was in line watching everything that happened. And so the man decided he would follow the dog. So the dog goes down the street and enters into an apartment house and climbs to the third floor and he gets to the third floor and he goes to a certain apartment and he starts scratching at the door. And so when that happens, the door opens and this angry man starts yelling at the dog. And so the man that followed the dog says, stop. That's the most intelligent animal I've ever seen. The man in the apartment said, intelligent? That's the third time this week he's forgotten his key. You ever sometimes feel like the man that followed the dog home? You see something amazing that happens, and yet it's best met with a less than enthusiastic and an unthankful response even. You see, when Jesus Christ lived on this earth, 
When he walked up and down the dusty roads of Palestine and he lived among men, Jesus Christ did some amazing things. He performed some wonderful miracles. In fact, when I think about my Lord, one of the things I'm most grateful for about my Lord is the fact that he did perform miracles. Now, understand something. The significant thing for us today is not the miracles that Jesus performed in themselves. The important thing is that with those miracles, what it is that Jesus says to us. Our text this morning is from John chapter 2 and verse 10. And it's part of the story of the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed. It was at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And at that wedding feast, Jesus changed water into wine. That gives us a great insight into the character of Jesus Christ. It gives us an insight into why we're thankful that He is our Savior and why he, we're thankful He performed the miracles. Here's what John says about this miracle. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. This beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and showed forth His glory. Now make no mistake about it. The kindly deed at that wedding feast that Jesus performed is important in itself. But its chief importance is what it says to us, what it teaches us, what it tells us about Jesus Christ. That's what I'm thankful for at this season of the year. This time of the year where we have the Thanksgiving holiday behind us. And we are in that season of the year that the majority of the world celebrates the birth of Christ. Now, be assured, nowhere in Scripture are we taught, commanded, or instructed to celebrate the birth of Jesus as a religious holiday. We don't know exactly when Jesus came. Because of the way the calendar has been constructed, the year itself is even uncertain as to when exactly Jesus came. When He came is not important. The important thing is that He came. The important thing to us is that divinity invaded earth and Jesus Christ was sent from heaven to redeem my soul from sin. John, in this story... This beginning of miracles, or this sign as John refers to them, holds up a mirror to the face of Jesus in a very profound way. It reveals to us something of the character of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus in the world. And it also reveals to us something of the method of Jesus in achieving that purpose. You see, this is a revelation of the interest of Jesus Christ in the commonplace things of life. Jesus Christ is interested in ordinary folks like you and me 
And Jesus Christ is interested in our ordinary joys and our ordinary sorrows. And the scene of this first miracle is a wedding in an obscure country village. We don't know the name of the bride and we don't know the name of the groom. The bride is evidently some peasant girl whose family has no place in the local social register. The groom is some nameless, ordinary man unknown to fame and fortune. But when Jesus receives an invitation to the wedding of these commonplace young people, Jesus accepts the invitation and He goes with gladness. He doesn't accept condescendingly. He doesn't accept out of a sense of duty. Jesus accepts the invitation because Jesus Christ is keenly interested in these people. And He's interested in them not because of what they are or who they are or their place on the social register. Jesus is interested because they are human personalities. And what you see Jesus do at that wedding feast is typical of the conduct that you see Jesus engage in all through His ministry. You read the Gospels. And you find that when Jesus received an invitation to someone's home, He accepted it. And He accepted the invitation whether they were rich or poor, whether they were hostile or friendly, whether they were high on the social ladder or they were nobodies. It didn't matter to Jesus whether they were socially prominent or whether they were social outcasts. Do you know what mattered to Jesus? It mattered to Jesus that they were people. Not one time, not one time in this book, do you find Jesus paying particular attention to any man or any woman because of their wealth, their rank, their achievements, their intellectual gifts, or their social position. Jesus leaves all of that for us to do. But Jesus was interested in this bride and this groom. And since He was interested in them, what concerned them concerned Jesus. Well, at that wedding, an embarrassment arose. Because the bridegroom was too poor to furnish refreshments in a sufficient quantity for the wedding. So we see Jesus coming to his assistance. <clears throat> Jesus did not do this because it was an absolute necessity. Having more wine was not a matter of life and death. But wine was an important part of the daily diet in that far off day. And the bridegroom was expected to furnish the wine for the wedding feast. And his failure to do so would have been a major social faux pas and quite embarrassing. So to save him from that kind of embarrassment, Jesus performed this miracle. During his earthly life, Jesus was constantly Interesting himself in the ordinary joys, the ordinary sorrows of the folks around him. What Jesus was before he came to the cross 
He also was after he had risen from the dead. John tells a beautiful story in the latter part of his account of the gospel. Along with some friends, Peter had returned to his old vocation of fishing. He said, I'm going fishing. And a lot of the others said, we're going with you. All night they toiled. And they caught nothing. Toiling all night fishing and it's dawn in the dawn, pre-dawn hours and early in the morning. As they start to come in, they see one, someone standing on the shore. They see this figure on the shore and at first they don't recognize who it is. And then across the water is shouted a question. A question that made their hearts beat just a little bit faster. The question was, children, have you any meat? Moffat translates it, lads, have you caught anything? Just as in the days before he went to the cross and the days before he was risen from the dead, Jesus is still interested in their interests. But they tell him, we've been toiling on. We haven't caught anything. So what did Jesus do? He told them how to cast their nets successfully and catch fish. So it's a little later. And they reach the shore. Dragging nets just overloaded with fish. They're full. And when they get to the shore, they find that a fire has already been kindled. And breakfast is being prepared. Who's preparing breakfast? It's Jesus. Who asked him if they'd caught anything? It was Jesus. I don't know about you. I find that to be a beautiful story. Here we have the amazing Jesus. He's just conquered death. He's just conquered the grave. But he still has the time, he still has the love to give himself to the lowly task of preparing breakfast for a handful of hungry fishermen on the seashore. The Jesus Christ you see fixing breakfast, as we say in East Texas. The Jesus Christ you see fixing breakfast For those apostles is the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus who is interested in our commonplace lives. The Jesus who's interested in our daily joys. The Jesus who's interested in our daily sorrows. That miracle... At that wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. It's a sign of the purpose of Jesus in this world. What has Jesus come to do? What is Jesus here to accomplish? Jesus isn't a thief who's come to kill and destroy. Jesus hasn't come to rob us of our laughter and cheat us out of our joy. Jesus didn't come to take one single gleam of sunshine out of my life or yours. What's He here for? He's here to transfigure and He's here to transform. Jesus Christ 
gives new glory to everything He touches. Jesus makes the useless into the useful. Jesus lifts the lower into the higher. Jesus takes colorless water in water pots and turns it into fine wine. Jesus came to change the deserts of life into gardens. The power of Jesus Christ can change the moral waste of the world into moral wealth. Jesus changed lives. He found a blustering, blundering fisherman named Simon. A man who was a creature of impulse and as unstable as water. And Jesus made Simon into a rock of Christ-like character. He found a thunderbolt named John. A man who was capable of such hot hatred in his heart as to want to call fire down from heaven and destroy a Samaritan city. And Jesus changed John into the apostle of love. He found a grasping, greedy, money-grubbing tax collector named Matthew and set him to writing a gospel. A demon-possessed woman named Mary became the first herald of the resurrection. He found an intellectual giant named Saul, the greatest menace that the early church ever knew. And Jesus makes him into the greatest missionary the church ever knew. The Jesus who changed Simon and John and Matthew and Mary and Saul is still the same Jesus Christ. And He still touches and He still changes every life that will surrender to Him. He still lifts the lower into the higher. You see, this miracle is a sign of the method of Jesus and I'm thankful for it. It's indicative of His method of working His marvelous transformations. How did Jesus change the water into wine that day? He told the servants to bring Him the bo bottles of water, the barrels of water, the firkins of water. He said, bring me the water. And Jesus said to them, now dip it out. And they found out it wasn't water. It was wine. Jesus changed it that day with the help of the servants that were there. Could He have done it by Himself? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, Jesus could have accomplished the task without any assistance whatsoever. But Jesus chose to do it through the aid of human hands. Those servants that day at that wedding feast, they had to cooperate with Jesus. In fact, they had to do everything they could do before the miracle was made possible. Jesus is always that way. When the hungry multitude was fed, He must have the assistance of the disciples and lean on the shoulders of a nameless boy with a lunch in his pocket to cure a paralytic he has the assistance of four friends undaunted by the difficulties who lower their friend through the roof 
to the feet of Jesus. When He raises Lazarus from the dead, human hands must roll away the stone and human fingers must loose Him and let Him go. All of the transforming work of Jesus waits upon your cooperation and mine. If we have abundant harvests, Jesus must send the sunshine and the rain, but we've got to do our part. We've got to prepare the soil and plant the seeds. If we're going to have strong physical bodies, we must cooperate with Jesus and follow the laws of hell. Are you listening? If we are to be a strong, conquering, vigorous, victorious church, it's up to you and me. God cannot do it alone. And it cannot be accomplished by wishful thinking. And it cannot be accomplished by speaking disparaging words about the church. And it cannot be accomplished by prayer alone. It takes effort. And it takes commitment. Notice what's said about the wine that day. The best wine came at the last. They told Jesus, they said, most people serve the best wine at the beginning and save the wine of lesser quality after people have drunk freely. But the better wine was saved for the end. Is that not the ultimate purpose of Jesus for the Christian? That the best for us is going to come at the last? He was going away from His apostles. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll receive you unto myself that where I am, there you might be also. It's in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. How does it happen? How does Christ's dream for us become a reality? What do we do to assist Jesus in His work of remaking the individual and remaking the world? What do we do to make life better every step of the way? His mother, Mary, put it into a simple sentence that day at the wedding feast. Whatsoever He saith unto you, do it. Ours is to be a life of surrender. A life of complete consecration to God. That's the whole of Christianity. It's Christianity in its course. It's Christianity in its consummation. As we've closed out the Thanksgiving season, and as we're entering into the Christmas season, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that Jesus came to this earth. I'm thankful He changed the water to wine that day. Not because of the miracle, but because of what the miracle represents. Because you see, the same Jesus that changed water into wine can change a sinner into a saint. 
We have to do what he says. Surrender to him. Make him Lord and master of all of our lives through obedience to his will. In simple trusting faith, confessing his name, repenting of sin, and being buried in the waters of baptism and then living his kind of life. And as John would say, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. It's his invitation as we stand and while we sing.